It's it's all California, so it all sounds like hell to me. Hey, uh, if you saw so, outside my window, I San Francisco is a hellscape. So we have uh, so we have diehard Chris as well, and then we also we also have Seth Payne too. Until uh, Steph Shirley oh joins, God. I love as well the surprise hey. this morning too. Let's go on, Seth. What's up, guys? I was uh, I told diehard Chris yesterday that we were going to read your article with uh, the compilation of takes about David Johnson because every single one of you just crushed my pathetic milk toast take. I've been I've been beaten into milk toastness by this team, uh, and and your guys your guys article re enlivened me. So, it, but then I lied to diehard Chris because we didn't get around to reading them on, on air yesterday. That's okay, man. So Seth, are you at the point now where like it's hard to even think about the Texans as a football team at all, or you're like the David Johnsons, uh, you know, can maybe mean this from an X's and O's standpoint, or it's just like it doesn't matter, you know, where you're at right now. <laughs> oh, okay. Where am I? I think that we we keep trying to come back to reminding ourselves that oh yeah, there is a football team here that's got to that's got to operate and get ready for next year, whoever the quarterback is. It feels just. It feels so dysfunctional. It feels just like a dysfunctional family where there's just certain things like sometimes you don't want to think about, and sometimes you just you you live in denial of the big white elephant in the room. So yeah, this last week I've kind of gotten into, hey, you know what? They were gonna have to spend two million dollars on Chris Johnson anyway, and you gotta <laughs> you gotta have some pass protection from your running back because you can't let whichever corpse of a quarterback is gonna be back there anyway get killed again. So uh, yeah, it makes sense. We're gonna pay two million dollars extra on top of the two million dollars they were already paying to to protect some quarterback that we don't care about. Yeah. At this point, logic is the just out the window. It's gone. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like anything goes. Like I would not be surprised if we brought back Ryan Fitzpatrick. You know, get the so get the band back oh, together. Yeah. Like, where's Brian Hoyer? He's probably well, sitting I mean, out. Give me it's bro. Just a matter of time before they reach out to Seth and get him to anchor the line. So, oh god, that would hurt so much. And so, like, every time Richard Smith too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Richard Smith. We uh, yesterday we we brought up. I, I was reminded of some old motivational ploy that Richard Smith was using in 2006, and none of us could figure it out because he put up this picture of like this stupid ugly rock and it and it looked like it was it wasn't even a good rock it was like sandstone or something and and he started to go into this metaphor about how we were going to be the rock but that part of being the rock was also like climbing the rock and that <laughs> But if you want to break a rock, you got to really just keep pounding it all the time. And he kept mixing between all these different versions of a rock. So I, I Googled it because I couldn't imagine that it would have gone on past 2006. But there it was in 2007 explaining why, explaining why the rock persists and endures. And it was just – it was such a – that was – the rock was a horrible metaphor – and yet the story of Richard Smith trying to use the rock as a metaphor was a perfect metaphor for those first two years of Richard Smith defenses. That's one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. Yeah. There's a, I'll, I'll, I'll send you some notes, Matt, and you can do that thing you do where you make it look like it's uh, literary. I like it. I like it. Well, we also, have, we also have Steph Strally this morning as well, too. Um, right. As we try to put uh, some sort of semblance of reality back together here. Uh, Steph, so how excited were you to get your season ticket letter? I saw your notes. You're so good taking notes oh and making scribbles. It, it was absolutely beautiful. You know, um, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, I'm going to put on my sunglasses because this room is very bright. 
Um, it looks bright. It's very bright. You're this really doing that to hide the, the hide your identity from Texans fans. Yeah, this is the time of day I can't work in here um, when it's bluebird sky, which we should enjoy this day, enjoy the entire weekend. No, I, I got my season ticket letter. For those who don't know, last year you had the option of, uh, because of COVID, either delaying purchasing your tickets or deferring to the next year. Um, and I decided to keep my money because I like money. And um, that's unique. And this was, you know, also before Deshaun Watson was completely alienated from the team, you know. And and so we get this season ticket package. Now I've gotten them since the beginning because I've been a season ticket holder from the beginning. And it's everything that's wrong with the Texans all wrapped up into a package letter. I mean, the team, as Seth has been noting uh, this last hour, has has always had a tendency towards toxic positivity. And, you know, everybody, you know, for their individual lives, you know, being a positive person, having a positive mindset really can help you get through a lot of different things. Toxic positivity is when somebody goes, hey, this is really bad. This is a terrible thing. And you go, no, it's all good. And you deny the obvious harm that's going on and pretend that it doesn't exist and don't acknowledge those harms, don't acknowledge reality. And that's exactly what this season ticket package was. It was just, hey, we're going to go to Super Bowl and it's going to be an exciting season. And we're not acknowledging that Deshaun Watson's unhappy, the defense is who are these people, and it's not looking, you know, like, how do you do a rebuild and then say all this kind of stuff? And the, the hardest thing about all of this is, yeah, sometimes teams do need to rebuild. But the worst rebuild is a rebuild when you don't trust the people doing the rebuild. Yeah, you lose that element of hope. Okay. Yeah, and, and the hardest thing for season ticket holders, like, you know, my mentions go, well, if you're paying money to the team, you're part of the problem. And if you look at my pin tweet, the second tweet has advice for PSL holders where I wouldn't got questions answered by the Texans about how this is all handled. And the issue is, is if you don't pay for your season tickets, you lose your PSL. Some of those PSLs have value. Some of the PSLs, you'd be better off just washing your hands of it. And it depends on your particular circumstance. But if you don't pay, you lose it. Now, the first the first deadline for payment is end of March. And even if the Texans were perfect, there's certain there's certain uh, fans that may not want to go to a crowded stadium, even in this fall because of COVID on top of all this other stuff that we're dealing with. And and to those people and to people that are just like, hey, I want to know what's happening with this Deshaun thing. Uh, talk to your season ticket person. They might let you delay making payments until you feel better about something or you've sold your PSL or whatever you want to be doing with things. Now, the thing is, is the team doesn't get punished really when you sell your PSL because to do so, you have to go through them and they take a fee from it. So they actually are benefiting from when you churn your PSLs. The only time that the way you decrease the fee is if you find a buyer separately from the PSL marketplace 
and they don't have to touch the money at all. And now, of course, there's issues with that as well, but they don't put a fee on top of it. So no matter what happens, the Texans are winning. We are losing and we're not even getting our pain acknowledged. They, you know, when, when, when you experience pain and people keep telling you to be positive in the face of that pain, it feels terrible. And that's kind of where Deshaun Watson is. I mean, he has a different leadership model than cornball. Like being a cornball New England person is an option. It's a better option if you have Bill Belichick running things where you're like, okay, I'll deal with this cornball stuff. But, you know, I have a super genius running, you know, this and maybe I trust it. Deshaun Watson is not a cornball. His method of leadership is saying, hey, I appreciate you for who you are. I value you know, your contributions and how good you are at your job and everybody, you know, we're going to make this fun where it doesn't even feel like work. Like if you're with me, everything's cool. And he has that charisma about him. The Texans, uh, at least what you're seeing them do is like this kind of top down approach where, you know, we all have to be the same robots. And if you don't believe the same things that we do, you might not feel very comfortable here. And maybe performance is not the highest criteria. It's, you know, how, you know, how much you align with the top down approach of how we see football players have to be. Like everybody excels if you do things exactly like this person. And, you know, by that criteria, early Tom Brady would never have made the Texans. You know, he had issues with his, um, his girlfriend who was an actress and then he had his model actress and um, or his model that he married. And that would not have been cool with the 2021 Texans, at least as far as what I've been hearing. Uh, Tom Brady, Mr. <laughs> Baby Mama himself uh, would not be a good player for this version of Houston Texans. Okay, uh, I, think the, I think the light's better now. <laughs> I was enjoying the Amy Winehouse look. Yeah, yeah it, it kind of makes you look disaffected. Well, that's hey, a good you, you get to see was, my cow. I'll let you see my cow right now. I thought it was like the 2021 answer to the bag over the head for the fans, you know? <laughs> hey. Paints across the top. You know, it's it's hard. You know, I've, I've been in the stadium – I, I I was sitting probably behind Seth during the terrible game in 2005 where they thought that they were going to win and Ryan Fitzpatrick came back and oh, everybody yeah, yeah. taking their tape oh. off. I was sitting behind those seats because <laughs> people were giving me free seats anywhere in the stadium. And I'm like, I'm in here. I'm just happy to have football. And I've sat in there when David Carr threw a pickoff in a, in a, right before the half in a nighttime game. And I was literally the only person still sitting in my entire section in the lower bowl with my free tickets. There. I mean, it's, you know, you're, we're 20 years in and we're doing a rebuild. And Cal McNair thinks that if he trusts this guy, that that should be good enough for everybody else. And that's hard. Like, think of think of the person in your life that you like and trust the most, who makes you feel good about being yourself. That's what Jack Easterby is to Cal McNair right now, and that's a hard situation because 
not everybody else feels that way. Even the people, even some of the people who were fans of his in the very limited role he had as the person who led Bible studies. <laughs> like they, the, I have gotten so much, like I talk to everybody about, like I'll listen to anybody about Texan stuff. And the number one thing I get back is how is this happening? And I'm like, and, and I'll tell, I'll tell them, it's like, okay, this is, this is my advice to everyone is okay. Everybody have a drink of whatever you're drinking. <laughs> and then this stop making sense. You don't have <laughs> heads album. And sometimes you just need to stop. You need to stop making sense of things like you know, you're like, oh, there's this big conspiracy and this. No, no, no. People like who they like. Cal McNair likes Jack Easterby and other people don't. And other people don't believe in him and other people don't shouldn't believe in him. And after the Sports Illustrated articles, you know, Cal McNair and Jack Easterby had a response. It's the biggest response that Jack Easterby has had to anything. And the thing that he said was, I enjoy the the trust and confidence of the McNairs. And if other, if other people don't trust me, I will work to regain that trust. Well, you know, some things, what could, what could he possibly say in 2021 to get anyone to trust him? You could think- draw from the toxic positivity playbook. <laughs> I mean, well, some, some people might find that appealing. Like if you're in the in-group and you think that this is the only way, then maybe that sounds appealing. But I got to tell you, I talk to everybody, face painters, bloggers, national media, local media. And for a long time, there's been complete agreement that this was bad news and it was going to turn into bad news. And the way I understand it, you know, there is no God's eye truth with this because, you know, every, you know, our, our truths are through our own perceptions. But the perception that I have through what I understand is he came in and he saw things that he didn't think were right, you know, for a football team. And I'm sure that anybody who came to the Houston Texans would see things that could be done better. Like they leave money on the ground, left and right. There's so many things that they could do to make this team better. So I'm sure Jack Easterby came in, wanted to be helpful, came up with things. They thought that they were gonna get Casario, that got botched up and then everything was botched up after that. And, and then the thing that was really difficult is, you know, as, as popular as it was to fire Bill O'Brien when that happened, just because that finally meant that Bill O'Brien was out, that's a really difficult time getting rid of a coach, especially when you have a staff as lean as the Texans were. It was a staff that's kind of similar to the way that the Patriots do business, where they have a very lean staff that they um, appreciate, right? And once O'Brien was gone and and Jack Easterby was in charge and then Amy Pelsick was gone, who was a leader in her role, which a lot of people don't understand, Jack Easterby had full reign. 
And Cal McNair has the belief now that, well, once we get a personnel guy in and, you know, that will solve things. And once, you know, once he has his role, he can, he can, you know, it's a new year, so let's get over it. And human beings don't act that way. And I mean, would you trust your health to this team? I mean, I, I think Deshaun Watson's realistic in saying, I don't trust this leadership. I shouldn't trust this leadership. And I think also part of it is one of the reasons why Jack Easterby was brought in was he was almost in some ways babysitting Cal McNair and babysitting, trying to be the person to make sure that that the off-field stuff didn't get too out of hand. And, you know, grown-ass people don't like people telling them how to do their business off the field if it doesn't affect anything on the field. Yeah, like when they brought him into New England, he was really good at what they brought him in for, which is to prevent any more tight ends from murdering people. And as far as we know, nobody murdered anybody in New England that we could tell. After So he was successful at that. But that's different than running a football team. I, I think with the where I am right now with the Texans, where I'm trying to get by in this offseason. Can you guys hear me okay? I feel like my audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. you're good. Um, I, you maybe said it's kind of like managing a forest fire. I feel like there's some things that they've done to maybe contain things. And part of that is, at the very least, they've recognized the PR disaster that Jack Easterby has been. I these he's taken. Was he in that video at all that they put out? I couldn't watch that six-minute video that they put out. Did they, well, he wasn't in that at all. Never right? retweeted it though. <laughs> <laughs> so, although, and, although part of a part of that is, you know, he's he obviously is not front and center, but he's never been front and center, which means that he can do all the stuff and not be accountable for it, and people blame the forward-facing people. Right. Uh, but I think part of it, too, though, is the fact that he was trying to have his dual role where he was the high five guy, but he was also a guy helping Bill O'Brien restructure a roster and make decisions like that. I think he's going to I think he's going to take a step back from that. And he understands now that the guys don't need a, a buddy trying to coach him up on the sidelines during games or running around like a like a like a pep club idiot. Um so that that is at the very least the one part of it. The other side of it is that I think that the real real issue with the last two years was that you had Bill O'Brien and Jack Easterby operating as general managers, and they were completely and totally unqualified. So where Bill O'Brien would get some crazy idea about how he was going to structure the culture or how he was going to pay certain guys a whole bunch of money. You had Jack Easterby, the unqualified cheerleader, just telling him, feeding fuel, like like you say, Steph, feeding him all that toxic positivity. Like, yeah, you'll you'll be great. You can do that. <laughs> you'll be awesome. I don't think Casario is going to have as many cockamamie ideas as Bill O'Brien. So at the very I, I least, I mean, I mean, go stepping to the side on that. I mean, you see the David Johnson extension where you're like, really. Yeah, and then and then they brought in uh, I don't remember his name the new player development guy that they brought in who's I guess Dylan Thompson. Dil yeah, and and you know originally it was talked about him being brought in as a character coach, which you know character coach for grown ass men is a difficult thing to kind of 
deal with somebody's not receptive to your way of dealing with things. But if you're having somebody be the head of player development and their basic reason for that is they're friends of Jack Easterby and they were part of the same, um, the same religious groups, like, is he the most qualified person to develop players? Like, does he have a PhD? Does he have a extensive history? I mean, he worked for the Detroit Lions. Maybe he's good at his job, but right now his main connection is Easterby. And then they fired people that Deshaun Watson liked running the locker room. So those are all things that make it seem like this is Easterby's team and not just, okay, Casario's taking over and now things are professional. Like I, I wish I wasn't skeptical about it, but you know, it's almost like they're designing things to make it so that people have to depend, depend on Easterby more. Right. No, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't be skeptical of it. I'm, I'm incredibly skeptical of it. I'm trying to think of at what point does this forest fire fizzle out and what does that look like? Because at the very least, I think they've recognized – I, I like. I don't think Cal McNair understands the full extent of everything that's going on in his organization at all. No. Um, but at the very least, I think some progress has been made. I I always try to look at the long term since we started off talking about season ticket holders and whatnot. In the long term with a franchise, you always have to remember that NFL teams are relatively small organizations, no matter how many billions of dollars they're worth in that a couple of key hires make a huge difference. As we've seen, you know, the the neglect to hire a general manager and the insertion of Jack Easterby just devastated a roster, and it took less than two years to do it. Likewise, if at some point, somehow Cal McNair figures out that, you know what, maybe Jack Easterby comes over and helps us run our, our foundation or something off to the side, but we need actual football professionals in the building – things can change and they can change relatively quickly. So that's where I'm, I'm just kind of holding my breath and waiting to see how long that process takes. I mean, I, I guess there were, there were places where that could happen this year. Like there were, there were rumors that he was about to get fired at many different entry points. Um, you know, when he was made GM in October, I mean, I was hearing and I wrote at the Times, like, he's here to stay. He's the most influential person in the building and he's not going anywhere. And and then people are like, no, 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 at the end of the season, that it, no, he's, he's very entrenched. Like, think of how many years Rick Smith was, you know, were learning the role of GM and could have had exit points and did not like the the texans over the years value being nice versus performance and i mean i don't see how you can have a culture coach come in have like a like a huge sports illustrated piece which by the way has serious like hr issues in it like HR issues, like it's not just like, hey, he's a cornball. It's, oh my gosh, if this was a regular business, the HR department would have like a full boogie investigation of what's going on. And instead of that, they go, I believe in this guy. We believe in each other and let's reward him. Like he gets to choose the direction of the team. And I don't, 
I am not optim like if if all of the fire Easterby da 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 people sending things into the Texans doesn't work and in, in some way means that they're on the right track. I don't see the exit point from him on the football side. Like what do you think it'll take for the Texans to, you know, for, for Bill O'Brien, it was going 0-4. You know, once the, once the W start, stopped coming in, it was, okay, flush them out, get every start, start new. What do you think that line is for Easterby? Because it's obviously not a Sports Illustrated article debunking his mysticism. It's not it would, John Watson demanding a trade. It's not somehow. Yeah. Like he, it, like literally, the thing that is so hurtful about it, like we don't need to make it complicated. The hurtful thing about it is Cal McNair chose Jack Easterby over Watson, everybody else, and himself. I mean, it's the the, the national people come to me and go, it's amazing that Jack Easterby got Cal McNair to take the grenade of keeping him and taking all responsibility for keeping him and putting him in that spot. Like Cal McNair took all the blame and Easterby never says a word. Like he's being the servant leader, doing all the things behind the scenes and not getting the blowback it, other than people just going, we can't believe in this rebuild because we think, and, and 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 frankly, they should think that he has his hands in the football pie. I mean, he's vice president of football operations, and Casario, in his opening presser, made a big point of saying that they have a close relationship. He's going to lean on him, and it's pretty evident that so far he has leaned on him on some of the decisions that have been made, especially the decisions that are anti Deshaun Watson decisions. Yeah, and and when we are on the podcast and, and then, you know, you guys on the radio, Seth, and, and you, you're struggling to find something positive to talk about. Some of us are just naturally cynical. I'm one of those guys. But the problem in this instance is the worst thing well, – I say this with a little bit of trepidation. The worst thing I think that's possible that could happen from this <laughs> is losing to Sean Watson. We're starting with that. So if Jack Easterby is not going to be gone – as a result of his influence in losing Deshaun Watson, why would he ever be gone? It cannot pop. I, again, I pray to Jack that I'm not speaking <laughs> out of turn here, but I can't imagine it getting worse than losing Deshaun Watson. So if he weathers that storm, what right. storm can't he weather? And that actually kind of leans in a little bit to a question I have for you, Seth, which is I know that you have some folks in the organization you still talk to. Uh, I know you mention it sometimes on on the show and all that. Um, my, my curiosity is, and you guys touched, you and Steph both touched on this a little bit, is do you get any sense at all that, that you said that Cal doesn't understand how bad it is? Clearly, I think the Texans PR staff not even purposefully have acknowledged that they know how bad it is on Twitter without even saying it. So it's really Cal being insulated. And, uh, and, you know, Jack, Jack is Jack. He has the toxic positivity thing. He has that thing that one of, and one of my least favorite qualities in people, which is uh, the old saying, uh, don't piss in my face and tell me it's raining. Oh, that people like that just drive me absolutely batty. And Jack <laughs> is, Jack is the king of that. So I, I, I don't see that there's any, anything that is going to break through the insulation for, for what's protecting, you know, why Cal, Cal will never see how bad this is. So have you heard anything from your people that he has 
any idea that this is as bad as it is? Uh, no, actually, I was. Somebody told me the other day that had tried to talk to Cal that really he's, that he's committed to, to Easterby a thousand percent. This is a person. This is a person that understands percentages. He was he was uh, intentionally using a hyperbole there. Oh, so, great. Yeah, uh, it's that. He, I think Easterby has an answer for everything. And, you know, various people, we've had some good callers into the show, and uh, some of some people have written about it, just about this, this notion that a lot of evangelicals have where almost persecution is validation. Yep. Persecution is a sign that you're on the right path. Because if you're on the righteous path, there will be haters. There will be people who persecute you. And it's easy to interpret that as you know they do that they do the syllogism backwards they screw up the freshman logic of they if a then b so then they think oh if b then a right okay if if i'm on a righteous path then i will be persecuted so if i'm being persecuted then i must be on a righteous path it's like freshman shit excuse my language and but that's and i think that's where they are right now i i think that to address the first part of that question the answer to what would take what would it take to knock Cal McNair off of Jack Easterby? I think you have to go back to okay, why is why is Jack Easterby there? What Steph was talking about to bring in the right kind of people to avoid embarrassment to to have a certain culture that's there. I think if at some point if Jack Easterby brings an extreme amount of embarrassment onto the McNair family. Um, which I feel like he already has, yeah. I, like, but it's got to be something, something where he's shown to be a hypocrite of some sort, something scandalous, more scandalous than what was in Sports Illustrated. And I don't, I don't know if that's out there or not. Um, I, like, and I'm not, yeah, I'm not trying to hint at anything. I just have zero clue. But I, I think yeah. that's about the only thing at this point. Well, I mean, I know at least from what I've heard is, you know. I've tried to be kind of an honest broker about stuff just because, you know, I've worn different hats over the years with Texans. My current hat is encouraging the right thing, you know, because I understand it's really hard to create a culture and bring people together who have different backgrounds and all that. And it's really easy to criticize and it's really hard to do. Like, it's really hard to make something. So, like, I, everything that I do, comes from that perspective but i can tell you like the things that i've written i've written as though i'm writing it to cal mcnair directly because i know that sometimes people read that stuff like i know that they do but i have to tell you everything that i've heard is everybody's talked to cal mcnair people who have loved him and known him for decades Andre Johnson actually activated his Twitter account trying to, at an, an inflection point, at a time where things could have changed, he put it out there. But I've been told for a long time that people have like raised all the alarms and that they're just, he just doesn't, he doesn't want to hear it. And so when I'm telling you, Think of the person in your life that you trust and like the most and who makes you feel really good about being yourself. That's that relationship. And I don't know how, how they get around, around that. 
And I think the way that they're doing that, it's, and, and the people, the people in the building, there are so many good staffers in the building, you know, with even with the exits and all that, like they're very good staffers, but they recognize, hey, this is my role. I need to sell tickets. I need to, you know, put out a PR package. I need to do our social media. And the approach that they're taking is not authenticity. It is if we ignore it, it doesn't exist. And like, if, if I, I'd love for y'all to look at what the Dynamo have put out for their like redo of the Dynamo. One of the things that's listed in there is having people feel accepted for who they are, no matter what their background is or what their beliefs are, and also communicating in an authentic way. And the Texans have never communicated in an authentic way. It was always, there's always like, oh, well, if we didn't have this injury or blah, 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 or, or the whole idea that, well, um, you know, Matt Shop's going to be better next year and not having like not developing the whole roster. And if, if you talk to national people, they go, well, the Texans have always not really put a roster together. They haven't really valued football people to put a whole roster together. It's just kind of more personality driven. And at some point, I think they've created their own reality. Like it's great that the Texans have their own media arm because they do have more access than anybody could possibly have, even if they gave media lots of access. But part of that is creating their own ecosystem where the, you know, Super Bowl's just right around the corner. Like the most chilling thing was that whole first press conference where Cal McNair said, there's been questions about our culture and I'm telling you our culture is great. Like, like that whole press conference <laughs> was an inadvertent middle finger to JJ Watt and Deshaun Watson saying, Hey, we're all aligned. This is all great. Everything is, is roses. And we're not going to deal with any of the obvious issues that people like the idea that we had a sports illustrated thing is a bad deal because people want to keep things in house. People still want to keep things in house. There's all sorts of chambers of secrets of stuff that have not been reported that People want to keep in house because they don't want to embarrass people that are nice people that are just not doing a good job. They just want it to be better. Oh, I thought Kenneth L had a question, but he was leaving. Okay. Uh, I, I guess let's take a second to to uh, pitch our charities real quick. Cancer Research Institute, uh, Deshaun Watson's Foundation, the JJ Watt Foundation. If you can find it in your heart to give a couple of bucks to uh, one or all of those charities, we'd appreciate it. We're not collecting it and sending it, so we're not really tracking dollars. We're just asking you. Uh, you know, we're 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 suffering through screaming and crying and bleeding over Jack used to be for 25 straight hours. So we're we're just hoping that maybe uh, you folks out there can find a couple of bucks in the couch and uh, and and send it off to one of those. To one of those great charities. So, um, uh, hope you can uh, find a minute to do that and and um, and help some folks out that are a little bit less fortunate. All right, so, I have an actual football question. So, Seth, is are there any free agents in this upcoming free agent class that oh, you think God. the Texans should target, whether or not they trade to Sean Watts or not? Like, are there any players out there you think that meets that meets the middle of the Venn diagram? The middle of the event, oh, like guys that are uh, morally acceptable, but also... Well, it's like if you trade Watson, they'd be a good fit, or if they keep Watson, they could potentially be a good fit. Is there anybody okay. that, that would be worth selecting here you have your eyes on 
regardless of what happens to Deshaun Watson? I okay, boy, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, God, okay, would you would you spring for Chris Godwin if if Deshaun Watson was not here? You would not, I'd right? Say no, no, right? Yeah. You would not. Um, <laughs> Jadeveon Clowney probably not going to happen this year. Run it through the culture fit filter every time. That's it's hard <laughs> enough. Only one team a year wins the Super Bowl. It's hard enough to do it when you're available to when everyone's available to you. But when you got to filter it through who's a culture fit and who actually would want to be here, it makes it doubly tough. Yeah, and I also like I, I've been looking at. <laughs> I wish Matt Milano, if Matt Milano were, if the Texans didn't already have two linebackers who can't cover, um, I, I would love to see maybe them bring Matt Milano in. I'm starting to have, I'm starting to have anxiety attacks over our <laughs> linebackers inability to cover uh, as we enter this season where Lovey Smith is definitely going to want one of those guys to cover a lot. I, um, I loved it. I loved your Zach Cunningham tweet. Cause I don't think anybody really took it as a joke at all. Uh, yeah. I was at Cunningham covering the deep middle after failing to cover the deep middle of last year. Yeah, I, I <laughs> the only thing I can wonder at this point is maybe maybe with a change in coaching staff. And you know, one thing Lovey Smith will do is he'll he'll they'll go out and they'll run cover two every day, all day for the first two weeks of training camp. And maybe in the long run, it really screws them because if he doesn't learn to disguise and modernize the Tampa two offense, you know, with the, the way the Colts have done. And the um, Chiefs too. The Chiefs are yeah. running that invert Tampa two. Yeah, yeah. So if he modernizes, that's awesome. But he will start off with the basics. And maybe, maybe for the first time, Zach Cunningham really starts to grasp and understand like for one, how much he's screwing over his safeties. I like that's what I keep waiting for is for Justin Reed to get in a fight with Zach Cunningham on the field <laughs> at some point. Because there's times, you know, where the where the safeties look like they're awful because the linebackers aren't getting depth. So I, I maybe maybe something will happen because he's got the athletic ability to do it. Uh, you know, and honestly though, Matt, I really I'm trying to figure out how I feel about the center that they just signed, the Brit yeah. guy. Mm-hmm. You know, that to me seems like a reasonable general manager move where you're trying to replace a guy without breaking the bank, replace a guy who is overpaid with a guy who might be a bargain if he's completely recovered from his injury. Um, and it's not and it's not a ridiculous expenditure. He missed all last year after having an injury. But um, that's that's am I am I so beaten down that I'm optimistic yes. about that humdrum signing? <laughs> yes. So, so we're at the point where Justin Britt's exciting. It's yeah, it's exciting's not the right word, but it's a little bit of like, okay, we haven't completely gone off the rails. They I think they're, I think they're going to do a bunch of one-year deals. Yeah, we just kind of bridge to the point where they can get actual draft picks. Well, the problem with tanking in the NFL is that the people who are in your long-term plans take a lot of physical abuse while you're tanking. So yeah, you could die if you're tanking. Yeah, exactly. So you draft a couple of guys in the first round and then have a, a hodgepodge offensive line in front of them. I don't think you do. You got to try to find that happy medium. The big mistake is if you if you get a quarterback like Ryan Fitzpatrick, because then you might mess up and win eight games. And <laughs> so, but at the same time, you don't want your young players to learn bad habits. You don't want your a young running back to get the snot beat out of him. So you have to walk that delicate line. And I think, I think Britt is maybe one of many of first steps towards walking that fine line between tanking, but at least having some kind of legitimate product. 
Yeah, I agree too. I think it's gonna be a lot of one year contracts probably. And I because like I think there's two different there's two different paths this offseason. It's the one where they trade wallets before the draft and the one where they hold on to him after the draft. And I like, try to find players similar to that. The only guys I could think of was Malik Hooker because he could play like half the field and and it's hard to play safety in Indy's defense. I think Malik Hooker kind of like had a hard time having his brain put his body in the right spot. I like Dewan Smoot. I like Alan Butler. I like Cam Sims. And I like Eric Wilson. And aside from that, it really is hard Start to try to come up with any sort of you know, free agents that make sense because there's two different off seasons uh, facing them in the next two weeks here. Yeah. Which quarterback, though? I think he would move Lion Johnson Jr. to cornerback because if he's just playing shallow and he tackled pretty well last year, like you're not asking him to play man coverage. Oh. I think he could oh. possibly do that. No, I, I, was, I was asking about quarterback. Oh, quarterback. Quarterback. Well, hey, so, what Real quick about real quick about Lonnie Johnson. This is what somebody told me about Lonnie Johnson last year. Was that he came in at, at a lean two twenty five? That he's just he might just be too big to play corner, even in a oh, zone, okay. even a zone corner. I'm not sure because he's just a naturally big dude. But I do like I do like that point that hey, if you're playing a Lovey Smith defense, that you need more Rondé Barber than you need uh, than you need a little speed demon. So that that there might be a a role for him there. I'm legit afraid that this defense, which was historically bad last year, could actually get worse because they lost their one guy who could rush rush the passer. And I don't really see a situation where any, not to take this to the global cynical scale, for but for a second, like I, I don't see high end free agents have any int- having any interest in Houston unless they're just like you know Jack Easterby guys or uh, money, money. But, but I mean, or, or Eric I mean, $10 million the top, a year. the top, top tier guys are going to have, cho- have multiple choices of, of tons of money. So I, I just don't imagine that top tier free agents will be coming here. So my fear is that this team will go into a year after a year where they had historically bad de- defense. They lost their best, their best pass rusher and may actually approach being as bad or worse. And on top of that, you have a new system. Sometimes there's a lot of bumps in the new system in the first year. We don't know yet if Lovey Smith is going to run the antiquated Tampa two or the new Tampa two. Like I, I, I have legit fears that the defense could, could even be worse. So, I mean, and then you, of course you have a lack of draft capital, at least for now. And uh, that, that that's one of my that's one of my sort of I don't know if you'd call it underrated, but one of the uh, besides the whole Watson who's going to play quarterback factor is that the defense might actively get worse. One in fifteen I, is a definite reality. Well, yeah, I don't I, think Ryan Fitzpatrick can save that. <laughs> no. I think defensively too, it's one of those things where they're probably on the market of getting somebody like who's going to get you know a ten million dollar year contract like Okora or Lawson. I think it's more spreading out with you know spreading their money route to a bunch of different holes that they have throughout the defense and all. Um, Seth, what did you think about Ross Blacklock's rookie year? Do you have any hope for him this year? And uh, do you, and or do you think Charles Amenehu has another level to his performance as well? I think Amenehu's next level is just to become a more complete player. Um, you know, athletically, I don't know if he's ever going to turn into like a swivel hip to you know, get skinny through the gap, penetrate upfield type of guy. But I think he can be, I think he's going to be versatile in a four, three front. I think he can play three technique. He can play defensive end. So he's going to have value there. As far as Blacklock, I'm trying to, I don't want, I don't like making COVID excuses for guys because so many rookies played really well despite COVID, but Blacklock, every, Every worry that a lot of people had about him and transitioning to the NFL came true 
and he didn't address it. Like his, he's got a tendency to drop his head uh, before contact. Uh, that alone, if he could just fix that, that could go a long way. But he's still he's getting dumped on the ground a lot because he's dropping his head before contact. So, like an entire off season of drill work understanding where he went wrong. And then he's another guy that, that in Lovey Smith's scheme might end up being a lot better because he's not going to be thinking as much. They're just going to turn him loose and let him get straight up field. I think his explosiveness can make a difference. So I'll say if he doesn't make any improvements to his technique at all, I think he could still actually be a more effective player just because of the scheme change. If he wants to be a genuinely good player, he's got to really learn how to use his hands. And and sometimes sometimes guys will go like two or three years before all of a sudden something the, the switch flips on. And it's the strangest thing. I used to see it in college a lot. Sometimes sometimes it's a matter of like uh, back in the day, not everybody wore gloves. And sometimes you just put gloves on a defensive lineman and all of a sudden it's like they weren't afraid to stick their hands out there and they'd start – They'd be like kung fu artists with their hands. Uh, it's just a matter of when a guy realizes, oh crap, I don't have to, I don't have to beat guys with my legs if I can beat it with my hands, and that's what Blacklock really needs. Yeah, I think Blacklock was those guys too. Like at TCU, he had one thing he was really good at, which is like using leverage to get in the backfield and make plays. And then in Houston, it's like you don't need to do that at all. They try to use my DJ reader instead of using instead of letting him do the one thing he was really good at, and also being used on stunts and sort of things too. And so hopefully, you know, Levy Smith has some idea of like what he's good at and putting a spot where he can do what he's good at instead of what they did last year with him. It's a it's a really good point about him making plays with leverage too, because I can remember watching him and thinking that's a really nice play, but you're not going to get away with that in, in the NFL with that technique that, that you're going to have to take another step. And you see this with offensive linemen too. You'll see really dominating play. You know, Max Sharping was like this, especially at the level of competition that he was at. It's really impressive and athletically it's hard to do, but you're more just, you're just using manpower more than you're using a combination of manpower and technique. And you're, and you're going to have to clean that up. So he's, he's got the raw power. He's just got to figure out a way to, to take it that next 10 to 15% of technique work. Hey, hey Seth, uh, is it, is it a cliche that NFL players make their biggest leap from one year to year one to year two? Like I know maybe that could be something that's more related positionally, but what was your experience for that? At least for your, for yourself, but also for other players that you saw in the league. I think it's an individual thing. You see some guys that are late bloomers, and I can't even remember. Was Kareem his second or third year where he finally started to I think get it? Year three. I think yeah, year three. three. And that was with the scheme change and with uh, you know Vance Joseph maybe making I'm a difference. Actually, having Wade Phillips. Yeah, yeah, that that helps a lot. I, you know, for me personally, I felt like the biggest leap I made ever in football was from the first week I made a regular season appearance in the NFL to the second week. Like I felt like that was where all of a sudden that first, first game I played, it was against the Washington Redskins and it wasn't that many snaps, but it was like, it was almost like it was like the first time I fought a man, like a real man. (laughs) It was like my first, my first pro fight. And you realize I would say over those three weeks for me, that was when I realized the difference between playing in the preseason, playing in college, all of that. And that I better get, I better get better real, real fast. And and I think some guys, it just takes longer. But that is, after that first year when you got filming yourself, you've got an entire offseason. If you choose to use it right and 
you spend time not just lifting and running, but hitting the bag, working on your actual technique. Yeah, that's that's where I think most guys make the biggest well, difference. And, you, don't, and, you, like, you don't know what you don't know that first year. Well, and now there's so many more resources in the off season to work with technique experts. Yeah. And like and like, you know, like a lot of guys prefer their own workout guys versus the NFL workout guys specific to their particular position. Um, and so there's more options for people than ever. Yeah. You know what? The other thing too, when you talk about the resources, YouTube has been amazing. I mean, you see this in every sport, the kids that really want to nerd out on football and work on their technique, they've got, They've got YouTube all day long. They can watch the greats of the game and they can watch specific moves. And I think you see this generation of player, even though they don't get as much prep time in college and even though the offensive lines are a mess because of that, um, some of the guys end up being way more polished than than guys used to be coming into the league. And that especially, again, going from year one to year two, once you know what you don't know and you know what to look for, it's just a lot easier to do it now digitally with your with their iPads, with YouTube, with the the digital film room at the stadium. So well, that, and, and even even beyond that, like if if you looked at just across the league, there isn't a, a great onboarding of new players into football teams. Like that is an opportunity. There was a whole series of things about like just practice squad players and how they're just struggling to. <laughs> to figure out where the stadium is. And at, at the same time, they're trying to perform. Um, I, I mean, I think in some ways that's what Jack Easterby wants to do better for the Texans. Now how he's doing it individually may not be the best way, but I mean, there's a lot of stuff just onboarding to teams. It's an opportunity to make things better. I mean, that's something not just with football teams, with businesses in general, like how do you onboard people so that they can succeed quickly because it's to their interest. Yeah, that makes sense. I know. I know, Seth. Too, we kind of talked about last. I whenever we spoke, I guess like two years ago, into that uh, preview podcast. Some things you mentioned was just the Texans' ability to develop talent. How you felt like there wasn't a lot of uh, high level coaching going on. And so, we had a question from Arthur Fox H, and he asked, uh, "Can you ask Seth his opinion why the Texans were unable to develop talent over the last few years?" I think the, especially on offense, let's say three things. I'll limit it to three things. One. I think it was pretty clear there was a pattern over time of Bill O'Brien was totally cool in hiring people on the defensive side of the ball that might have a bunch of experience or might be even smarter than him in some respects or as smart as him. Where on the offensive side of the ball, he never got over that that issue that managers in a lot of fields have, which is they don't want guys who aren't subservient to him them on the on the on the field uh, hiring Carl Smith and a few guys along the way I think um, was was progress for him but it was always a micromanager situation with Bill O'Brien and with guys that had come up underneath him you know George Godsey and Tim Kelly both really came up underneath Bill O'Brien and that was what they knew of NFL football so there was a, a I, I think there was a there was a lot of troubleshooting that needs to be done on the offense that hasn't been done. And the uh, second line coaching. Yeah. The, so the second thing would be, you know, and Mike Devlin, uh, frankly, there was an inattention to detail and that there was also uncertainty, uncertainty from week to week 
amongst the offensive linemen as to like what their actual roles and rules were. Mm-hmm. And my old rule is that, hey, when smart players do dumb things consistently, usually it's the scheme or coaching. You know, guys don't go out there and try to be stupid. Guys who weren't dumb at other places that all of a sudden can't figure out which direction to go on a run play um, here, it's probably the scheme. And I think there was a lot of, in this game plan offense, there was too much change and there was too much uncertainty from week to week what the rules were. Um, And 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 a a focus on versatility where, hey, we're going to really focus on having you play all along the line, which you kind of need to do, but not as much, especially with young players where they're just more confused than than being developed in a spot. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that with coaching um, and, and with, you know, more perhaps, and Tim Kelly made some progress in changing and becoming his own guy, but really in developing a run game, the biggest thing I see as a defensive lineman looking at the offensive line year after year over these last few years was these guys are all over the place with their footwork. There's nothing they're doing that's fooling me. You know, you watch some good offensive lines. You put yourself in the position of a defensive lineman. And Mike Munchak offensive lines are always coached like this. I watch a Mike Munchak offensive line, and I can think like, oh, yep, I would have been screwed on that play. I would have been screwed on that play. I would have bit on the fake here. I would have gotten blindsided here because the offensive linemen are so coordinated, you know, between each other, but then also their their technique is so good. And the Texans have never had that. So so maybe with the offensive line coach, uh, with Campen coming in, that, that might make a huge, huge difference. I, I don't know what the metrics are within an NFL organization when they look at the reasons why certain players or position groups aren't working out. So you had years and years with Mike Devlin as the offensive line coach of them not taking – bad players and making them average, them not taking average players and making them good, them not taking good players and making them great. And at the same time, you'd see some of these guys leave and go to other places and and they would be better. It wasn't in all cases, but it happened several times. So when that's happening and in, in, in the NFL, when it's such a difficult business to stay in and there's so much turnover and, and roster churn and attrition, it just seemed like to me that Bill O'Brien, because I, I, you know, I put the responsibility on Bill O'Brien because he's the coach. He's looking at all this and saying, "Yeah, well, it's just the player. It's definitely still the player. It's definitely still the player." Year five, year six with Mike Devlin, it's definitely still the players. And, well, and, and when Mike, do you not turn to Devlin in the in the meeting room and be like, "Man, you are not doing your job. Goodbye." I think it's two. It's twofold with Mike Devlin. I think if if you look at the that whole offensive coaching staff. He was the experienced guy. Like, who, who is O'Brien to, to know what's missing if he just doesn't see it himself? And I think part of it is the the focus that O'Brien had on versatility. Because I had this very strange question questioning session with Mike Devlin, where you know, like there was one day where they brought all these different assistants in and you just had to like buttonhole them in a corner and talk to them. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to talk to Mike Devlin. I have lots of questions. And I'd ask him all these questions and he would just go, wow, that's a great, wow. That's a great question. Yeah, it is hard for rookies to be playing multiple positions. And, oh God. <laughs> I mean, it, it, and then I was like, uh Oh, this is, not, this is, yeah, it's like, you know, like, do you, like, like do you really I know this want stuff. You should know this tall stuff. guard? Is, is tall guard something that you want on this team? And, you know, like, it was, 
it was it was it was very weird. There, um, there's also, you know, when I, when I talk to offensive linemen who watch the Texans closely, and then this year especially because you were able to hear the quarterback set the protections and Nick Martin set the protections. There are a few times this year where I, I you know, I'll always with offensive line stuff try to send clips to my old teammates. Uh, and and <laughs> there's so many times where really, really smart ex-pro lineman friends of mine who played a decade or longer in the league will say things like, I don't know what the hell they're trying to do there. <laughs> like, I don't. Um, and they'll try to figure it out and then say, but that seems really, really, that's a big ask of an offensive lineman to try to figure this out. And then there are certain techniques, you know, like sometimes, like asking Nick Martin to molly out and, and, and block an edge rusher consistently. Some of these things are really, really hard to do. And just like Bill O'Brien was with his talent evaluation, I think there were times where Bill O'Brien just kind of knew that it was a low-risk proposition, but just hoped for the best. Hey, David Johnson might yeah. be as good as he was in 2016. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, hey, Nick Martin might be able to consistently make this really, really hard block. And it uh -huh. just, no, over time it breaks down. Uh -huh. It's like it's like playing the entire game with like a cracked windshield or something along those lines. Like it shouldn't break, but maybe if it does, we'll figure it out. Uh, driving like, ninety with a hood up, <laughs> just like peering underneath the underneath the little crack there. Uh, Steph, I know last time we talked was last October. I think we had like a very nice, like you know, uh, long flowing, like very pretty conversation where we were very excited for the future. Uh, and to a certain extent, like if they get head coach, they get general manager. You know, the Texans should be a playoff competitive team uh, again really quickly. And like this could be a quick rebuild if it takes a year, you know, maybe two years. Uh, you know, two years, maybe they'd be a Super Bowl team again. One year, they should make the playoffs again because Deshaun Watson's incredible. He took another step forward. And instead, we end up in this terrible, uh, disgusting alternate future. Do you think there's a worse future than the one we're currently in? And uh, do you have any other you know, beautiful alternate futures out there that you can imagine at the moment? Well, you know, the, the beautiful alternative future was the one that J.J. Watt talked about before the last game. I mean, he basically said, hey, if we get the right GM, the right head coach, I could see a team with Deshaun Watson doing all sorts of things because, I mean, he did stuff with this really, really terrible defense, like assuming that the Texans had like even an average defense. Um, if you had Deshaun Watson, you can do lots of stuff if Deshaun Watson's all in, but Deshaun Watson is not all in. I mean, like I'm supposed to do like a fantasy football preview on Monday. And I'm like, don't know the quarterback. Don't, <laughs> don't know. I don't know who's going to play defense. That is worth a crap. Um, like, I mean, really like the only fantasy football advice you give is okay. See who the Texans defense is playing against and then pick a bunch of waiver wire guys you know, like augment your team with waiver wire guys who are playing the Texans and they're, they're going to put up a ton of points because I don't have any belief. Like there's no evidence to the contrary. Are there alternative futures that are beautiful? Yes. And I will give you the Akeem Olajuwon example where Akeem was very sideways with the Rockets. He was fixing to be traded and they worked it out. And he won two championships with the your Houston Rockets with, you know, Clutch City and all that. Do I think that that's going to happen? No. I mean, people are like, why isn't Deshaun Watson talking to the Texans? He did. He did repeatedly. <laughs> he tried everything. Everybody tried everything. 
And Cal McNair chose Jack Easterby over everyone, thinking that, well, Jack will just bring in more people who are nice. Like, it's almost as though they think that the issue was that they are trying to go in the Wayback Machine to go, like, what if we would have gotten Casario the first time and build this kind of smart, tough, dependable, all-in thing then? Well, the problem then would be O'Brien likes to say the word MF and and abuses people because he has um, emotion modulation issues that work against him. And so they solved that by like, okay, well, we'll get the same language. We'll just get, you know, the nice people. The nice people will say the same things and we'll get more experts, which they have. And, you know, sometimes that, that can, you can bring disparate people in and it works out for you. But in the short term, if you don't get Deshaun Watson all in on what you're doing, I don't see great things. But, for example, if I were in this situation where I had to deal with it, I would go, okay, fine. Deshaun Watson's not all in. Uh, his contract actually is not a great one for roster building. Like if you look at Mahomes' contract compared to Watson's contract, it's more roster friendly, like building a roster around that contract. So, you know, the best way to rebuild is you get a rookie contract of somebody who's pretty good. Um, you have a larger collection of people now because the, the league is not all about six foot four people with gun arms. You know, you have different players that you can do. The way that the Texans have approached things in the past is when players are sick of their BS, they just bring in new players that have no idea that this is not the way that normal teams are run. And so that looks like the direction that they're going to go. And sometimes you can have teams that can win that have no stars, but they play really hard together and they're coached really well and they can succeed. That's harder. Like the easy way, like, you know, Cal McNair has made this big point of saying change is hard. And the answer is if you're doing things right, change is beautiful. It's hopeful. Everything is hard in the NFL. (laughs) It gets people vested. Like they, the Texans from their very beginning have almost treated their fan base like they're idiots. Like, you know, like they kept them at arm's length and said, we know better than you. We know better than the league. We're going to do what we want to do. We're not going to explain it very well to you. We're going to treat you like idiots. And we know what we're doing. And so it kind of is off-putting. But, you know, the best situations are when the fans are aligned with the players and the staff, where everybody feels like they're on the same team and they're going the same direction. And right now, they don't have – like they know that they don't have it. They don't have the fans. They don't have some players. The staff members are keeping their heads low and trying to keep their jobs, but it makes it harder on everyone. Mm-hmm. It's so much easier when you have, Hey, here's Deshaun Watson. He's the easy button. He makes everything good. He makes people feel good. He makes people want to come here. Well, they don't have that. They don't have that right now. And they don't look to have that. Like they could have had that. They could have had that. They don't have that. Now they have to, we're pushing hard. We're pushing hard. Like, you know, sometimes the best way to succeed is to make it easier for everyone. <laughs> focus yeah. on their jobs and not on BS. Yeah. Uh, we, I know, I know. I think, 
Seth, yeah, we're gonna let Seth go. Take over a second. I have one, like, one last thing to ask for you, Seth, before you leave. Do you? I know I've been listening to your podcast with you and your friend Drew. Do you have any good life blogger advice for us before so we can enjoy our weekend and give us some strength to carry on through uh, the next life like, blogger? Or, yeah, what's the next? Give us a good life blogger advice. For oh us, man, you know what? Oh, that's we a, got 13 more yeah. hours. I need some strength from you. I know. I was just thinking, you know what? I was actually, I had some thought this morning. I was like, I should probably jot this down because I, I talked to some uh, kids. I did the Cornell football career day for the kids yesterday. And afterwards, I'm like, ah, I didn't tell them anything. I didn't tell them crap. Um, <laughs> but I had well, a no thought this sure, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I honestly, one of the things that I told them last night was that one of the biggest leaps forward I ever took was when. I started accepting that I am a product of my environment and and we all are more than we want to believe yes. but what you but what you can do is choose your environment. So for me making change or making progress or achieving goals in life for a, for a long time now has been mostly about trying to engineer my environment and get get myself surrounded by the right people, get myself yes. on the right schedule and create the right habits. So choose, choose your environment and then your environment will mold you, but don't be ashamed of being a product of your environment. Just don't use it as an excuse. I love it. I'm ready for the rest of my life now. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks guys. Well, Thanks, that's fun. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's a great point you made stuff though about uh, sometimes the easy way is the is like the correct way to do it. You know, you not everything has to be so difficult. Just you don't have to struggle just because uh, like struggling itself isn't a good thing to do. It's good not to struggle. It's good to to make things easy and enjoyable and to enjoy things and do things the easiest possible way. And so I making mean, things so difficult. And the Texans have been the the masters of making everything difficult for no reasons. Every I think every single step up the Deshaun Watson era since they drafted him uh, back in 2017. Oh, I, completely. I mean, that is that is the Deshaun Watson leadership style is, hey, everything's good. I'm good at what I'm doing. I want you to be a part of it. Jump on board. I mean, that's that's the best like getting people vested, fully vested, authentically vested in what you are doing is real leadership it's not like hey i'm going to tell you how to live your life yeah not bumper sticker slogans and you know i gotta tell you the best low-key troll of the whole deshaun watson saga was after everybody got surprised that east be staying and here's casario and we're gonna do more of this kind of stuff that they've been flogging themselves with um the first thing that Deshaun Watson posted was him in Mexico with his lady friend. Because A, he's on vacation. He deserved quite the vacation, like the kind of vacation that he deserved after that last season. He could not make it epic enough. But the other part of it is that he had his lady friend with him. And maybe that is not something that the Jack Easterby Texans completely approved of so that was saying oh something without saying something man if that's a problem for the texans then i don't know how they're gonna fill a roster <laughs> you, you, but, yeah, you I, joke I, about that i'm gonna tell you how it is yeah. how it is is they don't want another aaron hernandez fellowship of the texans man that's that's and, where we're headed and really 
the way that they're structuring things where they don't seem to be valuing performance first, um, they are really looking for people that are on and off the field Boy Scouts. And it is not just Casario doing personnel. They are still being collaborative in the way that they were doing things, at, at least on some of the bigger picture issues. Like I was told that, um, like for example, with head, the head coach choice, that um, there were limitations on, the, on what they were looking for at head coach. Hmm. Limitations. From the very top, from the very top. Limitations such as like what, what was being excluded from what you heard? Well, they just, they, <sighs> careful word choices upcoming. Yeah, I don't, I'm not That's sure fine. if I can, can I, I'm not sure if I can completely spill the, the secrets because I don't want to get anybody side. Sure, sure, sure. No, that, totally. But, no, you don't I want mean, to expose anybody. I get it. Yeah, I mean, it's, they are, Easterby's driving the bus. Yeah. And he has cover. And boy, boy. I don't, I don't know how, I mean, I think it's just going to, it's actually going to be the way that the Texans have always done stuff, which is, um, here are the people that we have in our, our organization and we may not agree with everything in our direction, but we're going to do our individual jobs to the best of our abilities and keep our heads down and not really acknowledge it because acknowledging things means that you're not part of the program. And I, and you know, and sometimes you can overcome stuff like that, or sometimes you do get dynamic people coming into your organization that are game changers, but like, for example, like Arian Foster. Arian Foster would not be <laughs> yeah. text-worthy. I threw it out a long time ago, like when all this Easterby start stuff started, that I would love to be in a world where Arian Foster was on a Jack Easterby team because I just have this vision of, you know, Easterby doing the high-five coach thing with Arian on the field and Arian just shutting him down with the most brutal look possible. Well, I would just pay to see that. Well, and we almost – we already kind of saw it because – it was a pretty hard transition to go from a Kubiak team where, you know, hey, it's all about being a pro. Like, we're teaching you how to be a pro. These are the things that you need to do in the building and outside the building to be a pro. Yeah. And being a pro has nothing to do with, you know, your life experiences or your belief systems or anything like that. Be a pro, right? Um, but it, it wasn't they didn't kind of insist on kind of smushing your personality. Mm-hmm. Well, then O'Brien came in and, you know, what he came from and what the Texans had was very different. He also wanted to kind of put his stamp on things like any coach does. Sure. And it was weird because, you know, like, for example, just like where they would stage the media and we would have to like race across the, we'd have to race across the street in enough time after practice. And they wanted us to enter different parts of the building to get to that area. And then they changed it back around a different way. And, you know, they'd start the year off to the players saying, you know, it's not, it's all about team. It's not about you. You know, 
you know, just trying to be the best teammates you can be, right? Well, then for a while there, Arian was just, he was just kind of goofing with people. Yeah. Like, hey, I'm just here <laughs> trying to be a good teammate. <laughs> the best teammate I could be, which is was his approach to dealing with that. And also he had gotten sideways with some members of the media. So it was people deal. Um, it's just not... It's not a good environment when you are afraid to be the person you can be. Like for all of my writing, for example, I try to put myself in the shoes of people who are making the decisions. And sometimes I think, is this an organization where I would feel comfortable working in it? Like, would there be a place for me in this organization? I know lots of people, they're they're very nice people, but I think it's not an organization that's very comfortable to be in if you're not just saying the things that they want to hear. Yeah. I, I think one of the weird things about the East Street thing too, is seeing some clips of like Texas post game speeches from over the years or like pictures over the years. And like, he's just kind of there in the background every time, every like all the time everywhere. And uh, he's just this like weird force. That's kind of always been, you know, in the walls and everything. You didn't know, we didn't know about him at all necessarily until I, I, well, I you did <laughs> it wasn't like i guess a mainstream thing you're like i didn't know a whole lot about him until this past season at all and then you go back and you watch all these clips and you're like oh he was there uh, all along throughout every single bit of this and really i think the only hope at all for anything to happen with easter is if um you know rivers mccown uh, does matthew mcconaughey true detective season one and finds the finds the source or finds the video that you know gets him out of there after all the work he's done sleeping through every single clip and quote I think that's the only uh, possible world we can have where you know, there isn't a Jack Easterby, Cal McNary, Texas football team in the immediate future at all. Yeah, that's hard. I mean, from his perspective, it must have been kind of strange, like because he's he's being asked to come in the organization, and you know, like to just go through his career in the NFL, like. Literally, the thing that he did in Kansas City was being flown in to handle their Bible study and to re-energize their Bible study program because it, it wasn't doing well. And then, you know, and then the Aaron Hernandez thing happened and, you know, he wanted a more official role than the guy that runs the Bible study. And so he went to New England and had the very limited role run by Bill Belichick. You know, Bill Belichick's not going to let nonsense happen. And in a very limited role where he has gotten relationships with people, mm-hmm. um, that was better. Now, there have been reports that say that at some point people were thinking that he was kind of meddling into their jobs and kind of uncomfortable and whether he was narking out people. Mm-hmm. And then you're the whole issue of him getting an agent. And then the place that he was supposed to be before coming here was the Colts before the whole Josh McDaniels thing blew up. Mm. So that blew up. Some oh, of the- this could have been happening to the Colts. I see. <laughs> so then, you know, he, he comes here in the character development role. And part of that was that, Cal McNair, he really does want to do well by fans. He really does want to win. Sure. He writes big checks. That's a good thing yeah. from an owner. 
He writes I checks mean, for guys that don't work here anymore. He, he'll McNair, spend. Yeah, really. McNair will write checks. Yeah. He, the, the McNairs over the years have done so many things behind the scenes to write checks for things that help winning. So that you have an owner that writes checks, I guess, is better than a number of other owners who aren't that way. Um, but he likes to be, you know, my interactions with him have always been just very, actually pretty sensible. Like he actually asked me the most sensible question anybody's ever asked me, which is how is it that you can do this? And we had that conversation. Like that's, that's actually a smart question to ask. Hmm. Um, and we had that conversation. But he, from what I understand, he likes to just be one of the guys and he wants, you know, he wants winning football and he thinks that what's in his heart and his intent is enough, you know, yeah. like it's, it's enough that he wants them to win and that he knows this guy and he thinks that this guy who makes him feel good can help create a culture where, frankly, O'Brien did do some things. I mean, like you saw Hard Knocks. You know, that that's what he did on camera. Sure. That's what yeah. Bill O'Brien did on camera, on camera, where he was yeah. seen. And so, they, a, go ahead. I was just going to say, on a human level, I, I understand conceptually that Cal and anyone in Cal's position can latch on to someone and bring them in. The thing that does not make sense to me is that whatever it is that bonded Cal and Jack didn't have to do with what happens on the football field. So great, bring him on, give him an office, have him be your, you know, spiritual advisor, have him be the character coach for the team. All that makes yeah. sense. None but of it makes sense when it gets into football decisions. His his view is that um, he helped the Patriots. He brings an expertise of what the Patriots did. He worked really hard to deal with the COVID stuff. He worked really, you know, like he puts in a lot of hours and he's there to help with whatever ways he can help. Now, other people perceive it as micromanaging. And, and frankly, to be the new person coming into an organization that you're not very familiar with, you will ruffle some feathers. And so that's how, that's how Cal would see it. Cal would see it as... Hey, look, you know, change is hard. Some people didn't want this change. And, you know, but he's doing things that are right. And I trust him with doing it. He's done a lot of work and he gets attacked for things personally, which is true. He does get some personal attacks. Mm -hmm. And all that McNair sees is really, hey, he's getting blamed for things that were my choices. Like, for example, the Brian Gain thing. Brian Gang was fired by Cal McNair. This was not something that, you know, as it went down, O'Brien really wanted to have happen like that. Um, like it, it, it amazes me the day that um, Brian Gain got fired and then we were going to have the press conference. And that was probably one of the most direct press conferences you'd ever see. And it was interesting to me to see O'Brien's demeanor with it. Like, it didn't sound like he wanted, he wanted that. And people were like, yeah, he really wanted it. But really the big picture thing was that, you know, Cal McNair 
really likes Casario. He respects and likes Nick Casario, likes his vision, is all in on that vision. Now, Nick Casario's vision, as he articulates it, is not the same as a Deshaun Watson vision. Mm-hmm. You know, team before self, da da da. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, everybody should want to be a part of a team, but the whole idea of sacrificing yourself for a team is the whole idea of Andre Johnson saying this franchise wastes players' careers. Like, why would you want to be in, in the, why would you want to go to the team that says just sacrifice yourself? At least, you know, like for example, the Jaguars just made a change. And one of their big messages was we're going to ask a lot of our players, but we're going to give them the top of everything. We're going to give them the best facilities. We're going to give them the best coaches. We are going to earn how much we ask them to do. And, you know, football already asks too much of their players. They ask too much of their players. And to say, oh, like the whole concept of the Casario presser where it's like, you know, team before self, self before I, except for Jack Easterby, I guess. That was just a terrible message to, to hear after, you know, J.J. Watt and Deshaun Watson had a complete loss season just a joke of a season where they put themselves out there. They got to the end of the season and then Cal McNair says, surprise, we're going to do more of the same, only we're changing the coach. Mm-hmm. It's the same messaging that you're bored with and everybody's bored with, and they want to be in a, an enjoyable situation. Well, it's funny too, because like everything you mentioned about the team over the individual like it's led to a roster construction where Larry Tunsil's paid $19.4 million this year, the highest paid player on the team. Deshaun Watson's second at 15.4. Then you have Brandon Cooks at $12 million. Wendy Merciless at $12 million. Uh, Randall Cobb is like the sixth highest paid player at $10.1 million, along with you know, Zach Cunningham, Eric Murray, and, uh, and those players too. And so it's like it's the Texans were a team that was based on their supreme talent, but now instead of their supreme talent being DeAndre Hopkins, and J.J. Watt, and you know Deshaun Watson. Eventually, if he gets traded, it's Whitney Merciless, Brandon Cooks, Laramie Tunsil, Eric Murray, and Zach Cunningham. And so, like that talent drain of playing, of paying these guys, you know, be star players, which are no longer that, uh, bumping them up has completely like, removed the Texans' ability to you know get by without having great coaching, without having great talent, uh, without having great development because of how good their you know top supreme talent was. And now that talent's been gone without the you know resources that match the talent that's left. You know, it's kind of like a lost and aimless franchise now. It doesn't have the same, you know, level of uh, of talent to piggyback on like it has previously before. Well, and and I think, I think it's always, you know, if you look over the course of the Texans, I mean, how many times have they had the first pick? You know, like that shouldn't happen a lot. And so, like, you know, their method has been get some amazing player who can overcome all of the roster deficiencies. They can't overcome them and they, they, they eventually lose, but we have to work really hard. Like they've always had teams that work really hard. Now it would be great if they worked smarter and the smarter way to work is to have a roster composition that makes sense where you spend the money in ways that make sense. Like if, like you shouldn't have to pay that much money to have a competent left tackle. You shouldn't, but also they got two rookie tackles that year, right? They they didn't have anybody to kind of mentor them, which is going to be the issue with 
the Texans defense where you don't have any dynamic players who are in the, in the primes of their career to go, Hey, this is how you do stuff. It's just going to be kind of like, okay, you're going to have to rely on the coaches fully and you're going to have to figure it out yourself. You're going to have to figure it like that was most of the, the Texans years. Like, you know, you had, you got, Mario Williams and D'Amico Ryans, and you had terrible coaching and not very good um, rosters. And then you just got to go, okay, work really hard, work really hard. You have nobody really helping you figure out how to do this. You're just going to have to do it. Like, you know, it's, it's my view is I've come to realize that there's something that I call the Andre Johnson rule, which is most players are not good enough to overcome their situation, but some players are. Some players are like Andre Johnson could overcome the situation he came into. Deshaun Watson could overcome the situation he could come into, but there's limits to that. And when you talk to agents, agents will go, yeah, the Texans were always stupid about roster composition. Like they focus on, Hey, we want to reward this guy or that guy or whatever, but they don't have an idea of, okay, how do you have your dynamic players and you have players coming up through the pipeline that are learning from those dynamic players and you're not spending money in a salary cap league where you're over committed to certain positions that are not necessarily the positions that you want to be spending most of your money with. If you have a limited pile of money, I mean, do you see that too? Yeah, I, I see the same thing. And like and the other weird thing about it with, with the environment they're in now is that you know Houston blew a twenty-four point lead to Kansas City. And even the year before that, whenever they uh lost to the Colts in the first round of the postseason, and their answer to that wasn't like get better players, coach better, develop an offense around Deshaun Watson that makes sense and gets the most out of his strengths and skill set, but that the problem with the team was the culture. You know, the reason why they did have the reason why they lost twenty one seven and fell yeah. down you know, 21-0 the Colts in the first quarter in the 2018 uh, wildcard round. The reason why they blew a 24-point lead to the Chiefs in the divisional round, had to come back and, you know, claw to beat the Bills. The room before that was because of the culture, was because they cursed too much or, you know, they, they weren't tough enough or whatever. Whenever the, the problems were like very like football-specific things that, you know, you and I and, and everybody else can see if you just watch the game and, and pay sure. attention to it a little bit. And even them being so close to it, you couldn't come to that realization. Now you're in this complete opposite where the culture is more important than the players, but the players are more important than the culture. And now there's no players at all to even have that level of, you know, somewhat uh, competency at all anymore. Yeah. And I think the way that the culture is going to be in the short term is uh, something that a lot of people in Houston might be familiar with is like satellite offices where you, know, you have mothership and then you have satellite offices where you you bring in people from all different backgrounds and you hope that they mesh. And sometimes that works. And then sometimes it's just a bunch of individuals just trying to get through the day so that they could go to Applebee's at some point, you know, like just trying to make it through. Um, but yeah, like if, if culture is the most important thing to you, it's kind of like, you know, if you have a hammer, everything is a nail. You know, if you're the culture guy, everything is culture. And if that's your only contribution that you give because you're not an X and O's guy, like the hardest part for me with all of the Nick Casario stuff is I don't think that the team understands the roles that people want to see from them. Like Casario and, and I've talked to a number of people who say, you know, he's really good at his job. He puts in a lot of work. 
he's a good guy. But in the New England system, he was completely or mostly behind the scenes. They don't have a lot of forward facing stuff. And the thing I wanted to see from him, you know, was more kind of the Brian Gain, Rick Smith posture, which is, you know, this is what we're going to look for players. This is what we're going to do. This is our plan. Da, 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 da. I mean, they didn't do a lot of that, but when Casario was doing at least the very limited amount of press that he did inside and outside the team, it was more like, boy, you're going to be really excited about this. And I'm really excited about it. <laughs> and rah, rah, re. And I'm like, I just want to know that you're competent and that you realize the issues that you're facing and what you're doing about it. And then I don't really think that Cal McNair understands the role that people want to see with him. Like they don't want him to be like, I don't want to see him at all. I don't want a forward facing owner of the team. I want him to write big checks and get the best people he can in the roles that they're in. And it's pretty evident from all the public information that Jack Easterby is not the best person to be head of football operations because admittedly he's not a football guy. And really the biggest issue that Texans have had over time is that they've had a very limited football um, bag of tricks to, to dig into. You know, they had, they had their mixed stuff in the capers era. They had the Kubiak era, which was very Broncos. They had the O'Brien area that was very New England. And they're just doing more of the New England thing, but just kind of the more broader view of, hey, there's a lot of, you know, there's not just friends of Easterby out there or friends of Belichick out there or friends of Kubiak out there, that there's a broader world. There's ways of doing things that don't involve, you know, making things difficult for yourself and then, you know, saying, hey, look at us, we're noble. We overcome the issues that we created for ourselves. Like, you know, like when they lost in the playoffs, like who thought that they would have a possibility of winning given how bad their defense is against a good offense? Like they create, for a long time, they have created the issues that they've had and then create, and pretend like it's noble that they overcame the issues they created. And it's more of the same. I, I mean, find that, oh, sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, I find it especially frustrating with Cal that this is going to sound strange, but in a way, he is the exact kind of owner you want. A guy who knows that he's an introvert, knows his limits, and will counsel with someone to make football decisions for him, and he'll write big checks. The problem is he chose the wrong guy. Like, if he chose the right guy, this actually would be a perfect ownership situation. But he chose the worst guy possible. So he has the self-awareness yeah. to not be in the forefront and to have other folks help him. But he does not have the self-awareness to understand that the choice he made was a unbelievably bad one that has taken this franchise from sort of a middling striving to be an upper tier NFL franchise to a franchise that I think you could legitimately make a case for possibly being the worst in pro sports right now, as far as the situation goes. Well, and, and, and just, just recognizing that perception to some degree is reality and that you need to create confidence in what you're doing. Now, Casario as a choice, could have been a confidence building exercise. Sure. 
how the coaching search went after you fired your coach in, you know, for, you know, for, you know, games in and say, Oh, you know, now we have all this time to search and then we're like the last ones to get a, a, a coach here. I mean, the the decisions that they have made are not confidence inducing to the fan base. It's not confidence inducing JJ Watt or Deshaun Watson or anyone who wants to work with competent people that they can learn from. Uh Like there is nothing that Deshaun Watson and JJ Watt can learn from Jack Easterby, not a thing. And really, you know, this whole idea of servant leadership, who is the leader of the Texans? It's not Nick Casario, mm-hmm. right? It's yep. the personnel guy. It's not, it shouldn't be Cal McNair. It shouldn't be Jack Easterby. Who is the leader? It's not Deshaun Watson. They are rudderless. I mean, I've had people tell me the best thing for the Texans would be to have a situation like you have in Green Bay where, you know, you don't really have the owners, but you have somebody who is running the ship as the whole ship. And, you know, they're going to get a team president. That is the team president, like Jamie roots for better or worse. Um, you know, he, he had pluses and minuses, but his plus was at least he cared about what fans thought. And a lot of, he did a lot of things that that were su- suggested by fans over time. Sometimes that didn't work out well, but sometimes it did. They could go a completely different direction. You know, they might they might elevate somebody who's already in the building, or they might just go, oh, hey, you know, now we're going to Easter be this the way on up. I mean, sure. you can already tell a little bit of a change in the communications. Communications are very, very, very fluffy about you are our family and we love you. And, <laughs> and you know, there's always a little bit of that, but lately it's come on a little strong, particularly when it's not recognizing the current reality that yeah. your quarterback is so unhappy. Like, how sad is it that JJ Watt's saying, I just want Deshaun to be happy, or yeah. at some point in the season, he says, I, I wish that we had that connection that we had with our fans. I mean, that is sad. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's not hard to fix. I mean, you yeah, basic just things. get competent people, you get real leaders. And see, and I, I think the biggest thing is Casario is a personnel guy, but who's the leader? Who's the leader? And the leader is going to be Jack yeah. Easterby because he's not the introvert. If Casario is the introvert and Cal McNair is the introvert and Jack Easterby is micromanaging every aspect of the team, who's the real leader? Yeah, and that's what concerns me so much about the decision to keep David Johnson. It's not like the fact that it's a bad football move and it doesn't make any sense at all for the 2021 Houston Texans with or without Deshaun Watson. Um, it's just the fact that it shows that even if necessarily like – it shows that Jack Easterby is some level of – influence over personnel decisions by da- by David Johnson staying on this roster uh, for another year. And so we had a question, Steph, from Mr. Free29, th- and this is like an adjacent to you mentioned that Cal McNair really liked Nick Casario. Uh, his question was that John McClain said that Cal McNair met Nick Casario for the first time on the flight from Bedford 
So he was wondering, how did it come to the fact that Cal likes Nick, um, if that was the first time he ever met, according to John McClain yesterday? Uh, I think it's one of those things where he was sold something. He was sold. Like, he was sold on it. Like, he he ate all of the Brian Gain money. He ate all of it. Like, he, Brian Gain had just, what, 18 months before he got fired, something like that? Like he ate all of the rest of that contract to get this guy who happens to share the same agent as um, Jack Easterby and Tim Kelly and, you know, any number of people, but he was sold. He was like, this is, you know, the New England way is the way to go. Uh, if we brought this guy in, you know, he's a genius. You know, he does things the right way. He's, you know, he doesn't eat barbecue. <laughs> um, that, you know, it, the and one of those sounds weird is, enough I'm, to not say that. That actually bothers me. <laughs> no, actually, I, I, I appreciate that him being honest that way. Although I did joke about it ahead of time. Like, I just said, oh, yeah, they're going to bring somebody in that doesn't like barbecue. And <laughs> enough. And then but, say it out know, loud. <laughs> But I think part of this goes to, you know, his unofficial committee that of people that he talked to. And that unofficial committee is like, what kind of organization do you see for your future? And if you reread the the biggest statement that you've ever seen Cal McNair say in anything, uh, if you reread the Casario McNair presser, he says, we're committed to winning and winning the right way. And we ask our fans to trust us. And so his vision is if you create an organization where people are all nice to each other and they are good people who do things good off the field, uh, you will attract people who are the right people to win. And, you know, Nick Casario does the Tom Brady stuff, like, you know, wakes up early, eats the right foods, you know, super lean dude, you know, <laughs> that they're good. That's what they want. They want people to be the people that go all in on the New England way of doing things, which is a really kind of, you know, monkish existence. Like you don't like, there's plenty of ways to win. Um, if you have options in your life, that might not be the way, but there are teams that are like, Hey, we don't have the best, we don't have the best players, but we work really well together and we're well coached and we'll beat you. Like, I'm sure that you've played on teams like that. Like I have to say, I'm always the worst player on any team I've ever played on, but, <laughs> I, but I have been the best player on teams I've played on. We sometimes won just because, we were smart and we played well together, but that's a much harder thing than getting your friend who was, you know, tried out for the Olympics and she can beat all the dudes, you know, like no dudes on the other team can cover her. Like that's, that's an easier way of winning. Yeah. And I think, I think it kind of goes along with Watson as well too. Like it's him being the easy button is that in football, like so much can change quickly year to year. And so you can win games without having a great quarterback, but it takes 27 different moving parts. But it's very easy for one of those parts to break and the whole thing you know, sputters and falls apart. And then you have seasons like the Texans had 
know, in 2013, for example, that once like once one part broke, the rest another part broke, and then the whole thing fell apart. But, like with Watson, you know, that's kind of key to you know having long-term sustained success in football is by having a really great quarterback. And that's the only thing that you know, will provide that because injuries and it's such a short sample size game. And so without Watson here, like you're losing that aspect of it. And now what does it even mean to win games like in the in the correct way as well too? Um, we had some other questions, Steph, and one of them was about you know, Jamie Root stepping down. Does this open the door at all for Jack Easterby to become the team president at all, do you think? Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> they could go that direction. I don't think that they will, mostly because um, – most people that are named a team president don't have hashtags called fire Jack Easterby by pretty <laughs> much every element. Like e- even, even the most forgiving Texan fans would not be happy with that. I also think that um, one of the things that he prides himself in is um, trying to promote diversity. So I could see, them as using this as an opportunity in a non-football role to um, put a diverse person in that spot to reflect the diversity in a city like Houston. Um, but I mean, it's it's a very difficult role because, um, you know, it's uh, teams teams are like a very small town kind of country uh, company. You know, there's people that have been there since the very beginning, and it's hard to figure out, okay, how do we change without alienating people that have been riding with you since the beginning? And that's a hard thing to do. I mean, Jamie Roots had connections throughout the city. Um, The next person will need to have connections throughout the city and be okay with what's happening with the team. Like, the stresses that are being put on the team right now and the staffers on that team are immense. Like, like it doesn't make like the reason why there are so many leaks coming from that building is that people are unhappy with the way that things are being done Mm -hmm. and fans are unhappy. Like if you make Deshaun Watson, one of the most chill, positive people ever angry, you're going out of your way to do that. And so when you don't have that kind of alignment between your, your players and your staff and your fans, it just makes, it's just a bummer. Like I don't want anybody to feel bummer about stuff. Yeah. I mean, right now, sometimes, sometimes everybody's care is going to need to be calibrated. Everybody feels different ways about what's happening with stuff. And at this point in Houston, I think the best role to be is just an encourager to encourage them to have a healthier environment where fans don't feel alienated, where players don't feel alienated, where staffers aren't going, Hey, look, I understand how this is. McNair's been, you know, lots of people have been talking to McNair and he's, this is the direction that he's going. And so I'm doing my job. Yeah. If, if you're, if your football culture is not a fit for Deshaun Watson, your football culture sucks. He's a good soldier. He's a good citizen. He's he put, put up with a lot of stuff. He put up with a no, no. Like 
to think about the number of things that Deshaun Watson has put up with since yeah. he's been here is amazing. First thing, that staff was very limited. Like we were talking with Seth earlier, that staff was a very New England staff with, you know, grad students that work really hard and are kind of learning their way up and someday they'll get to be a head coach. Well, that's not the kind of teachers that you need to teach an offense. Uh-huh. Deshaun Watson didn't really have great role models when he came to the team as far as quarterbacks helping him figure out the best way to be an NFL pro, but he's just such a remarkable person and charismatic person. Like the first time you interact with him, you go, Oh, I get, I get this. I get this completely. I get why people are drawn to him and why people respect him. And he's, he's done things on the football field. I've never seen done before, but like thinking about the things like he didn't have coaches, he didn't have mentors. The, the scheme was not very well suited for him. Like for a moment, it looked like it would be his rookie year. And that's the year that got O'Brien paid. Like O'Brien should give that paycheck from that season, his extension to Watson, because Watson's like, like that Titans game, his rookie year among the most fun regular season games I've ever experienced in my life. Oh, that was so much fun. Watson was playing well. The defense was playing well. They all worked together. They crushed them. You know, everybody's arms were sore from high-fiving. I mean, that's that, that's yeah. the feeling you want. And then they just – but they just went operations shut down with a lot of things because they were worried about getting Watson hurt again. And um, they, could def- they could depend for a while on their defense to keep them close in games, and then that went away. And then, and so, but like Watson played with like all sorts of random wide receivers uh-huh. with no running game, with, with his head coach being fired, with cornball giving cornball speeches. Uh-huh. Like he overcame all of that stuff. And at the end of the day was like, okay, we need to get through leadership here. And they did the exact opposite. And, you know, you can't, you can't have somebody who is an absolute badass and a great leader and then expect for them to pretend like everything's okay. Like that's, they, they basically emasculated. They want Deshaun Watson to put his testicles in a purse and go, okay, you know, be fine with the way the situation is. And, you know, the reporting and, I've heard separately says that Watson took it upon himself to be the interactor with Cal McNair to make things better. And it didn't happen. And, and really, you know, what we talked about earlier, you know, that's the stuff in that sports, the two sports illustrated articles and some other reporting are very serious concerns. Like they're not just, Hey, you know, you have Michael Scott in your building. It was, you are making people feel uncomfortable for who they are and who, how they believe and being racially insensitive. Uh And, and they didn't deal with that at all. Not one bit, not one bit. They crip walked right past it. (sighs) On water. (laughs) On water. Yeah, I mean the whole the whole mess with Easterby. I mean, we could literally spend the whole twenty five hours on this. But 
Steph, I want to ask you a really, really hard question to answer because I know Whoa. I know you're capable. So this came up last night late where Tim asked us all, how do you think it ultimately ends with Jack Easterby? So again, like I'd mentioned earlier, when Seth was on, to me, the worst thing is happening right away. And if that doesn't make him gone, then what will? So if you had to try, and this this is related to a question on on the on the chat stream here from Houston Football Three, uh, question for the panelists Tim, Carlos, and company Chris. Also, hope and believe deep down Jack will be a goner sometime between the end of the 2021 season and free agency. How? Where are you on that? Like, I know there's really no way to know this, but you know, maybe take take your certainly more uh, less cynical brain than I have. And, and try to give me sort of like a three or four month window when you think Jack might be gone. Uh, <laughs> it's tough, right? That's hard. I mean, yeah. I mean, we don't really have a long history with Cal McNair, but it's what the, the information that we know, like, you know, it's hard to make projections when you don't have much evidence, either inductive reasoning or deductive reasoning to, to work with. But what we do know is, He's a very loyal person to somebody. Like the only reason why Rick Smith was gone is because of just the tragic situation with his wife. And then when it did go, you know, the reports were that it was pretty ugly and sudden and unpleasant. Uh Um, But that he's super, you know, the, the Texans have patience, you know, which is a plus and a minus. And, um, but as I said earlier, think of your best friend in the world who makes you feel good and who you would trust in every circumstance and who makes you feel closer to how you see God. I mean, and then you're, you're supposed to fire that guy and he's under a long-term contract, by the way. Like well, a long, no, no, like a long term. <laughs> That's not public knowledge, right? Like we we know it's true, but but it's not out there how long it is, right? Well, it was, I want to say, I I put it on my Twitter because somebody told me, I think he still has five more years. Oh my God. Five. I think it's like around five, maybe six. <sighs> like, like somebody said it was a long term contract and I'm like, wait, what? And yeah. Yeah, and it's <laughs> high dollar too. Yeah. So my, my and, hope and is that Easterby's ego and, and will nobody, just sorry. Nobody else is going to give him this role. Like after what's happened in Houston, no NFL team will give him this role, especially yeah. with this money. Oh yeah. So this is his last stop. Yeah. So like you would think that somebody who had lost the trust of your dynamic quarterback would resign or would get fired and it hasn't already happened and he has a long-term contract. So I don't, I mean, there have been situations where they've invited people to leave like the weirdest situation pre social media. So we couldn't really bitch about it was, you know, Charlie Casserly hanging on after the Philip Buchanan debacle and he helped he helped with the first draft that Gary Kubiak had, which was actually with the blended view actually ended up being one of their best drafts. And then he retired or he was invited to leave. Um, so 
they some they sometimes have exited people in graceful ways, but Cal doesn't do things like Bob. Like there are some overlaps with how he does things and Bob did things. But I wrote earlier that there's so many things that went on that Bob would not have done. Bob would not have done the Brian Gain firing the way that that was done. Uh Um, Bob would not, would not let this happen. I I, I had a hard time thinking that this, or Bob wouldn't have let there be a GM by committee. And really this, this is what we currently have. I mean, I, I know Nick Casario has that name, but he's being very collaborative with this non-football person that he trusts and who, who has, as he put it, helped him personally. And, yeah. and maybe, maybe there's all sorts of stuff that we don't know that really actually he's great at his job and all the players are wrong and all the staffers are wrong and all the fans are wrong and all the outside advisors who know all the people involved with this are wrong, but I don't think so. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that's very strange about it too, it's that as weird as it is, that's public knowledge, there's another layer like private that is even like weird and even more grotesque than what you know we currently know, like that's that's publicly available to us. And the other thing I always like want to make sure kind of about the Easterby situation too, that people I think kind of lose sight of is that Bill O'Brien brought Jack Easterby to Houston, you know? And so like I already know like this revisionist history thing's gonna thing gonna happen for Bill O'Brien for the next like two or three years, because they'll probably win one or two championships in Alabama as the offensive coordinator down there. <laughs> and uh, and that's going to happen. The Texans are going to be 1-15, 2-14, 3-13, and 13, whatever. And then it's going to be, well, Bill O'Brien was a good coach. Bill O'Brien was this. Bill O'Brien was all these things that he wasn't at all. And, uh, and like again, like he he brought him here. I think like O'Brien was like a very mediocre coach that was able to get the bare minimum out of the talent, because some coaches can't get the bare minimum out of the talent that they have available to them. But I think there was like a definitely every time that you went to Houston was 10 and six and you know, one division championships and that sort of thing. It always felt like there was a different reality out there. That was a lot better than one that we were in just because the the players that they had there too. And it never really kind of completely fit together. And it was you know, indicative of, you know, Brian's own failures that he had too. And so like, I'm just, I, like, I always want to make sure that that perspective is kind of kept in line because I'm already, you know, waiting for the articles that are going to come out, you know, a year or two from now. Once we go through the the slimy the slimy mess that the Texans are you know, about to be for the immediate future. Well, and and I also think that just because you're good in one role doesn't mean that you're good in another role, which is the Jack Easterby story. And but I think like all coaches, even the best coaches, like an Andy Reid, they all have pluses and minuses. Every single one, and O'Brien. I don't think that people got the full view of him. Like he inherited a pretty decent roster that had been hurt the previous season because of injury and because Matt Schaub's arm fell off Uh and they, they, they anticipated it would be fine, but it wasn't fine. And that was projected to happen, but they didn't deal with it. Right. Um, And, you know, that was a failure of, just their whole roster development at the time, but he inherited a good roster and his view was let's keep games close. And the the dynamic players on this team can overcome stuff. You know, it's, it's an eight and eight league, blah, 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 you know, and then eventually um, he finally gets his quarterback. But by that time, the 
the defense fell apart. Like the defense was you know, like, then it was just overcoming the fact that you have no defense. Uh, and so I think they're going to just go back to their role of, you know, some years they suck and then they get some dynamic players who don't know how NFL teams work. And, and hopefully those dynamic players are good enough to overcome the fact that the roster isn't put together very well. But, you know, oh, I'm sure that O'Brien is a hardworking person that in a very narrow role where he's not picking the players and he's given a particular role that he's going to be good at that role. And also given the best players, you know, in the, in the world, that age group as well, too, uh, makes that pretty easy as well. So, Steph, I don't, you've already been on here talking to us for two hours. I don't want to take up too much of your morning. Uh, we're going to take on some listener questions. And uh, we have Eddie, uh, who's going to come in the studio and uh, talk to us for a little bit. If you want to yeah. say hi to Eddie before you before you get really? out and carry hey, on. Yeah, Eddie. hey, Eddie's here now. There he is. Steph. Hey, man. How's it going? How's uh, Matt, Chris, Steph? Wait, I, I gotta I gotta tell you an Eddie's story. So back back when times were fun with people, when people could be together and times were not bad, I had a I have for the time being a front row um, tailgate spot. And Eddie had the spot next to us, and their tailgate was the hookah tailgate. And then eventually we got to know Eddie's tailgate, and then we just made like a bigger tailgate, and that's the story of the real Houston Texans, the real Houston Texans are not the team right now. The real Houston Texans are the fans and the people that want a healthy environment for the team and want everybody to feel good about their direction and in being encouraging. And Eddie is the best. That's awesome. Thank you, Steph. You're welcome. Your, your insight the last two hours has been um, amazing. Well, there you go. <laughs> I mean, she's it's definitely the conscience of the Texans fan. Oh, man. I got to tell you, it's so much easier to talk about it than it is to write about it. Writing about it, it just feels like, like I don't want to say mean things. And I'm, and everybody's dealing with stuff right now. And I don't want to be a bummer. I want everybody to enjoy the day. And, yeah. and you know, I, I want everything to be cool. And it's not cool. And I'm not going to pretend that it's cool. But I just want everybody to to put their care in, in, in the way that it should be given and, and to, to care about the important things. And if the team's not caring for you back, it's fine to feel the ways that you feel about it at whatever moments you're feeling about it. And, you know, there's some beautiful futures out there that are possibilities, but boy, you know, the, every decision they make seems to be closing certain doors and that's unfortunate to see. Yeah, I, I like that a lot, and hopefully too. I was, you know, hopefully there's some fans in the game, and I, I still need to go down to a Texans game. I haven't been since I think 2009, uh, or something like that. And Chris Brown is a Chris Brown Jacksonville game when Chris Brown fumbled into the end zone and Jacksonville recovered, and uh, the Chris Brown who was hired to be the red zone goal line back to help solve the red zone issues uh, constantly fumbled the goal line. So hopefully, if there is a football team or if there is a football season, I can come out to Houston and bring some beans to a tailgate and. Well, you and, know, uh, I have a good time as well. Well, I mean, I wouldn't even want to go to the game. I just want to eat some beans in the parking lot and then go I'll, drive back to San Antonio. All, all, I, all I know now is our our tailgate chat has been kind of negative, where people are like, you know, 
we don't know if we want to watch this and we don't know if we're cool with the COVID stuff. Mm -hmm. Like that, that, that thing that they put out saying, Hey, we can't wait to have fans back in the stands. But like, I don't know about y'all, the idea of being with 70,000 strangers right now doesn't feel very appealing when, you know, we, I don't know how I, I, I would want to feel really comfortable by the fall. I don't know if I'm going to feel that way. And, you know, as I said earlier, if you're a season ticket holder and you're trying to preserve your PSL to keep your PSL, you have to pay for your season tickets. They're having a payment schedule. The first payment is March 30th. If you don't feel cool with it right now, contact your season ticket person and tell them what your circumstances is. You might be able to postpone it. But like, I got to tell you, I know all sorts of day one fans who are like, why do I want to support Jack Easterby's Mm -hmm. vision? I don't feel comfortable with this. And, and then there's other people like, why are you paying for these tickets? Well, if you don't pay for these tickets, you you may be losing thousands of dollars for your PSL that you could sell to somebody else. So that decision is a very individual decision. But right now, like sitting here today, I don't know if I feel comfortable tailgating with a bunch of strangers. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I just want everybody to feel better. But like right now, like I have one friend who's sick and the uh, another friend in the hospital, and the the case numbers are still pretty high. So like I I'd like to figure that out before I'm spending a couple thousand dollars on on one ticket in some a tailgate spot. And and people spend way more than that. Like this is. It's, yeah, yeah. Some people are going to say the season ticket holders are part of the problem, but it's hard to get out. Yeah, you know, no. Bath. Yeah, yeah let's not blame the fans. <laughs> I didn't, yeah, I didn't realize the financial implications of all that. As uh, somebody who watches the game in a very you know obscure esoteric way that I watch it, I, I I'm just also very <laughs> hopeful about the next two months as well with the some of the vaccination stuff I've heard too. But uh, I try to be as helpful as possible in that regard as well. So. That's the idea. And like, I don't even think I would even want to go like buy a ticket and go inside the game. I also want to eat some beans and drink some beer in the parking lot. Is all I really well, want to do. You know, that's, that's the funny part. Like I've lost two of my friends during this time that I would tailgate with normally. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's people financially who are just not being able to do this anymore. I mean, I, you know, I had, I had, Literally, I think today is the day is the one year anniversary of me having my first COVID symptoms. And I remember feeling what I did and thought everything's going to be different. Everything's going to be different. If if and when I'm able to go back to a game, it's never going to be the same. And, you know, change just happens and all that. But there's some grieving that comes from that. And then to have to have the Texans treat Deshaun Watson the way that they have on top of all this is just, I mean, I don't, this is just hard and I wish they would acknowledge it's hard, you know? Yeah. I'm like imagining uh, like riot security coming in the parking lot. Cause people are just, you're making effigies of Jackie's to be that sort of thing and, and burning a uh, straw men at the, at the stake and things like that uh, to, to protest and the stuff that may be occurring actually within the stadium, whenever it's yeah. Owen seven or, or Watson's not there. And, I'll tell you how it is. Um, you know, before last season, I went to all of the games, all of them, you know, 
I like football. I like hanging out with my friends. But in the seasons where they suck ass, like half the people aren't there, you know, or they're staying out in the tailgates or, you know, there's just the random people that got tickets because somebody don't want to go to a game. Like it's dead, it's empty, the energy sucks. And it's hard to think of a 2021 season where it's not like that unless they make up with Deshaun Watson. Now I can tell you there's, if I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody said that if they trade Deshaun Watson, um, I'm getting rid of my season tickets. Um, I mean, they're, they put themselves in a lose-lose situation the way that they've set all of this up because there is no trade value great enough to deal with this situation. It's just kind of managing it. And it's like, okay, let's grab a rookie contract, hope the quarterback's good and grab some other players and fix the roster. I mean, I think that's an approach that they can take, but the whole idea that that your culture is so bad and your leadership is so bad that Deshaun Watson doesn't want to be a player like Deshaun Watson, the person that we've been waiting for since Warren Moon. I mean, that's just, it, it doesn't feel good. It's just a bad energy. Uh, hey, Steph, as a, as a season ticket holder, I know last year you guys had an option to opt out, right? Like, uh, yeah. So is that has that been presented to you yet? Because I know you got the letter and yeah. you saw it on Twitter. Yeah, um, this is this is what I understand. Um, they are the NFL generally is planning as though they're having a full boogie fill up the stadium situation. The Texans' point of view is that's what they want. They're going to do what local places say. I was told by somebody that if it looks closer to the time where they're not going to have full capacity that they're going to give people options of um, getting their money back or rolling it over to the next season. And it may just be that they just roll it over the next season because a lot of people want their money back. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is a payment plan. So the first payment's March 30th. And then I think the last one ends up being, or yeah, the last one ends up being in July, but there's like a May payment. So like if for some reason, uh, like just me personally, and I don't know if y'all's ticket people would be that way. Like I called and said, Hey, I don't feel very comfortable with this situation right now. Um, or like whether I'm going to be cool going to a crowded stadium. And they said, well, we'll freeze your account right now. Your first payment won't be May, which happens to be after the draft. We will see what they do value wise with Deshaun Watson, but really, I don't see them putting together a return that makes sense. And I don't think that they want to. I mean, I think that I am pretty sure that Cal McNair wants Deshaun Watson to stay and doesn't understand fully. He thinks that, oh, well, you know, I communicated poorly with him. And I, if I apologize, that fixes things. Like, I don't think that there's any set of words that fixes it. And then it's just a question of, if they keep him and say, hey, fine, you know, play, don't play, we don't care, we're just going to, we have to have a team, then the question is, like, when does he jump in? Because it's different than, you know, a pay me Rick situation where, you know, cornerback decides to show up the first day or 
Dwayne Brown, like just coming into the game, you know, just in time for, you know, him to get a, a service here. I mean, he's the quarterback and they're not even trying. They're yeah, not even I, and it's fun. Like that piece in the Deshaun Watson was, all right, we'll keep Tim Kelly. Um, we'll have David Coley give you a phone call and then have that not matter at all, which is I'm, I'm still shocked that David Coley couldn't convince Deshaun Watson to stay here and keep David Johnson for another year. And that's the level of appeasement that they've had so far. Um, we also have Upper Texan as well too this morning. I know Steph, I know you, you've always enjoyed Upper Texan's minister of information articles and that sort of thing. And he, he's oh. having a hard time because it's hard whenever the propaganda becomes the propaganda, you know, it's hard to, to say the satire, the satire. Yeah. Like, yeah. How, like satire is totally dead. Like, the hardest part right now is if you make some kind of satire up, how would you know that it's not the accurate? Like you could make up any quote and I would go, is that real? Yeah, I mean, Poe's Law is really becoming a real, it's becoming a problem for me these days. So honestly, I said, that's kind of the reason I retired the administrator or this version of the Ministry of Information, I'm thinking of bringing it back now, but uh, change of the turn into a righteous gemstones kind of minister. Yes. <laughs> I think it needs to be only, only good vibes only. The only good vibes only. And if you don't have the good vibes, then you're out. <laughs> yeah, like out of culture. closing your eyes and imagining Randall Cobb and a David Coley offense. Cause that's, what's really going to break them out next year. Well, you know, didn't wasn't it Randall Cobb who said, "How do you preach um, accountability if you're unaccountable?" Didn't mm -hmm. he something like that? Yeah, he said something like that. Like account, you can't be unaccountable and be accountable or something along those lines. There's something to that. I mean, it really is hard to hear some of the messaging when it's coming from somebody who knows about less football than you, who's less accomplished than you but who's telling you what to do. And, and, and none of it's applying to him. Like take out the distractions from your life. Well, you're the distraction. Well, you know? I, I think at some point when Randall Cobb signed his contract, he had to know what he's coming into. Sure. And, and there was a, uh, I think, uh, was it like early in the season or it might've been training camp where, you know, he was, he was upset with like how wide receivers run their routes or they didn't have options or whatnot. And he kind of was like, what, what are we doing here, guys? Well, just punishing mistakes. It was it was like the punishing of mistakes. I will say just as a whole wide receiver issue, um, the biggest difference between a Kubiak camp and an O'Brien camp was there were very few drops in practices at Kubiak camps. It was just like you just are, you are a professional wide receiver. You're, you're expected to catch the ball other than Trendon Holiday. And in the O'Brien camp, like, like the offense looked terrible. Like just people just sometimes you drop a ball. Like it wasn't as, I, you know, it's just really hard for professional football players to come into this environment and go, what is this that you're doing? In any event, I am going to have to run away, but you know, I love all y'all. I love that you're trying, you're trying to, 
we just want something good to watch and feel good about watching. Is that is it's so basic. <laughs> Why is this so hard? Why do we have to suffer unnecessarily? Why? It's hard to screw it up this bad. It really is. It's almost well, impressive. Like the hardest thing for me was the the Jack Easterby Twitter feed is just such a drag because you know people <sighs> at people at him all the time and it's the ugliest, meanest stuff. And I'm sure he's just like you know what you're supposed to do is you know block out the haters. And of course we all see it. It's just terrible energy. But the the tweets he made like right at the end of last year but before the end of the season where he's like you know the valleys or you know that's what you that's how you grow and that's how you learn and you might not realize it but you're growing now and i'm like victory minded and and then it was all the victory minded victory 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 stuff dude read the room you've dealt with some real stuff here and you're not making this better. Like, I don't need my character built anymore. I have my own preacher. <laughs> I'm a grown ass human being. I don't need you to tell me how, even if I don't realize it at this moment, I am growing as a human being. No, I am not. No, no. You're putting, you're putting bad stuff in my heart and I don't like it. Like, I want to love everyone. I want to love, I would love, to love Jack Easterby and the best way that would be for him not to be a part of my football team because he is not as good as the people that he is alienating. And he hasn't ridden with the team as long as the fans have, as long as those staff members have. And he didn't, he might not mean it because, you know, nobody's the, the villain in their own story, but he's hurting people. Like, I don't know if he sees that. Steph, before you jump out, uh, Houston radio legend Larian Stafford is watching on the Twitch stream. He says, hi, Steph. Appreciate your perspective on the Texans. I know I've expressed mine a lot, and I got plenty more. (laughs) (laughs) So, And let that be an alert to the rest of you who are all doing this stream right now. Larry's watching, and, like, he's the best to ever do it, so – no pressure. <laughs> and, and those of you who are feeling a particular way, I got to tell you, when you help other people, it makes you feel better. And I love the fact that this is being used as a fundraiser that, you know, like if you're having like just a real, like the other day I was having a real bad day and I decided I, I was going to give blood. And then my mood elevated after that. And so sometimes the best way to kind of just deal with the stuff is to take something bad and make it good. And uh, that this is a fundraiser and it's bringing just all different segments of the Texans fan base together just as a cleansing. Like we're saying our piece. Mm -hmm. We don't have any control over it, which is a really uncomfortable feeling. And we're just encouraged. Like we encourage we want to encourage all of the sports teams that we root for be healthy environments and good for everyone. And we just want to encourage each other and know that our sports teams aren't supposed to make us suffer. They're supposed to be the thing that distracts us from stuff that sucks and brings people together in, in happiness, not because we're bummed out that they're going to run off the best quarterback that Houston may have ever seen. So anyway, peace. Everybody have a great weekend. Like 
figure out the thing that makes it good for you, even if it's eating brownies for breakfast. <laughs> Thank Thanks, you so much. All right, late. Thank you. We love you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Priceline. 